0: You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, loyal Perch listeners. It's me, Jacob, and I wanted to tell you about some exciting news. Um, we are transitioning The Perch Pod over to a new podcast called The Cognitive Dissidents Podcast. So I'm founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, but I've also joined Cognitive Investments as a partner and as their director of geopolitical analysis. And we're transitioning over to their channel over the next two months because we wanna put out a lot more podcasts. You guys love this stuff so much. You wanted more than just the every other week cadence. And we're gonna do that for you. We're gonna have weekly roundups um, with Rob Larity and some of these other folks who are following markets really closely. We're gonna have really exclusive deep content about things like Ethiopia and Egypt and the long history of geopolitics sort of really story uh, forward podcast, and then we're also going to have our usual conversations and back and forth. So the thing that I need you to do, it's a its a fairly simple thing, is go over to the Cognitive Dissidence podcast and subscribe. We're still going to be posting here for the next six to eight weeks or so, uh, but in eight weeks, we're going to be moving most of our posting over to Cognitive Dissidence. I wish I could just take you all and move you all all over there Uh, but I can't do that Uh, for some reason I can't do that but we all get lots of spam calls and lots of spam emails and things like that so all you have to do to continue getting our podcast is to go to the info here and sign up for the cognitive dissidence podcast you'll have plenty of reminders here over the next six to eight weeks so we'll, we'll continue to remind you going forward but please do that nothing else is changing besides giving you more of the content you love so joining me on the podcast today is Brian O'Toole Brian is a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Geoeconomic Center. He's also the senior vice president and director of sanctions and screening at Truist Financial Corporation. Uh, Previously, Brian worked at the U.S. Department of the Treasury from 09 to 2017 as senior advisor to the director of the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, where he managed the implementation of all OFAC-administered economic and financial sanctions programs. Um, I reached out to Brian on Twitter to come on the podcast, and he was nice enough to say yes, and I really appreciate him doing so, even though he doesn't know me from Adam. Um, I've been asked about sanctions a lot over the past couple weeks, and truth be told, I'm not a sanctions expert at all. Uh, and Brian is so I was really excited to have a chance to have Brian on and for me to ask him all those simple questions that not even I can answer I think more about geopolitics and a lot of times when I have guests on, I can hang with my guests. But in this particular case, Brian is a real subject matter expert. And I think he dropped some really great insights. I certainly learned a lot from this conversation. And I hope you will as well. So without any further ado, you know where to check us out online, or to write to us with your feelings about the podcast. Take care. We will see you out there. Uh, Brian, thanks for accepting a random reach out from a dude on Twitter to come on this podcast. I appreciate yeah.
1: it. No, I, you, you engaged in a, uh, a reasonable discussion of, of issues and on a platform that's notoriously unreasonable in those discussions. So <laughs> it seemed a pretty safe yes to say <laughs> on my part.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And I also, you mentioned that you were banging your head on your desk from whatever previous meeting you came to. So hopefully this podcast will feel um i don't know restorative in some possible way is that much more enjoyable well, i've been
1: dealing with the rest of the day yes <laughs>
0: um, we should also note we're recording on april 13th things are changing so much with sanctions day by day that even if we get this out on monday like we're hoping some things might change so you know this is current as of april 13th listeners so we appreciate your your patience and generosity so brian in some ways i, I have a list of questions and i don't know where to start um, I thought maybe the the best place to start would maybe be to, to get some context, which is yeah. um you know when the initial sanctions came out from the US and Europe against Russia, everybody was talking about what a big deal they were and the ruble crash and all these terrible things were happening. And as we sit here like six weeks later, the ruble is apparently back. Sanctions are still on, but it's almost like we've become normalized to them or anesthetized to them. I'm not sure. So I wanted to start with just where was that first salvo of sanctions, w- what was so special about them? Did it really break some kind of precedent? Was it really as serious as everyone was making it out to be? Or was it more kind of superficially serious, but obviously the Russians have been able to get out from underneath the worst implications of it?
1: It is incredibly serious. And the Russians have managed to pull the ruble back to the low 80s instead of low 70s where it was below before the crisis. Um, and down from the, the 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 figures are a little off because you know some people got quoted at one fifty five, one fifty nine, but stabilized somewhere in the one teens. Um, they're back down in the low eighties from smoke and mirrors. They raised interest rates to twenty percent. They've since dropped it to seventeen and a half percent ish. Imposed capital controls, right? You know, like classic collapsing economy capital controls. They're using foreign exchange earned from energy sales to intervene in foreign in uh, in currency markets overseas to create demand for rubles. And they've effectively artificially propped up the ruble with their their FX reserves and the capital controls. If you're an ordinary Russian, you cannot move foreign currency overseas. Right. right? That's a huge deal. Um, And so. You know, the calculation presumably from from Nabi Luna and, and others in, in the Russian kind of economic sphere is probably we can weather this for some period of time without causing major dislocation um, and create this artificial, you know, show of defiance. Uh, and then hopefully this all passes. Mm-hmm. They can't do this forever. Right They're that you know, Venezuela shows us well what happens when you don't invest in oil infrastructure, which is what oil sales go for, go towards a lot of times. Um, you know, they can't keep this up for very long. There's just only so much, so many rubles that exist outside of Russia anyway for them to keep buying up, and at some point they're going to run out. And then, um, you know, there was some indication. I think I saw a quick news report yesterday, the day before, saying that. Um, they, they opened up trading a little bit more broadly in the ruble and it, it, it started to drop precipitously so they had to pull the reins back in right so they're they're artificially controlling this
0: if i was to play devil's advocate on the venezuela example the maduro regime is still there <laughs> they haven't actually changed uh, their behavior in any fundamental way because of all those sanctions so i guess the to put a to put my finger on it how long can russia last and can they can they evade sanctions longer than it's going to take them to consolidate whatever position they have in Ukraine?
1: So, look, I, I've I've long been one to say that, um, and I'll borrow the phrase from from my colleague Julia Friedlander. You know, sanctions don't stop tanks, right? Um, and I think I think that's true. Sanctions work slower than the military. They can have an effect, right? You know, there's there's been some scattered reporting about. Um, you know, impeded supply chains, things of that nature. Um, And so they they can certainly help kind of around the margins, but fundamentally what's stopping the Russian tanks of the Ukrainian people, the weapons the West is providing and kind of that whole policy. So sanctions can work alongside those things to have an impact on, on the military side. The Venezuela example was more of one about not, not reinvesting your profits in your infrastructure for oil, right? Venezuela famously has basically strip-mined um, their, their oil revenues for corruption purposes to keep the Maduro regime and prior to that, the Chavez regime afloat. And their their oil production has dropped accordingly, right? There was a huge oil producer that's sitting on probably the largest reserves, proven reserves on the planet, um, as I understand it, are pretty close to it. Um, but they don't pump anything near what anybody else pumps because they simply can't get it out of the ground. They haven't invested for years. They have this dilapidated infrastructure. Um, and it's a huge problem. And that, that was kind of the parallel I was drawing, you know, to, to the broader point though, about, well, Venezuela is still there. Iran's still there. North Korea is still there. Um, I, my, my kind of retort to that is, is Russia going to tolerate being in those places, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you can't get basic things in a lot of those jurisdictions, um, you know, including in Iran, which is better off than either of the other two um you know venezuela and north korea constantly suffer from sh- food shortages medicine shortages regardless of the fact that sanctions allow those things to go in and you know the the social compact as it were that vladimir putin established with the russian people and in my view and this is all informal of course you know, it's not like any formal but like the, the essential deal with putin in the mid-2000s was him saying to the Russian people, look, I'm going to roll back some of your freedoms, but you're not waiting in line for bread anymore the way you did under Yeltsin. So be quiet and, and deal with it. Um, so rising tide lifts all boats. Russia wrote, wrote a huge commodities boom that increased wealth. There was a middle class of sorts that was created. There was the ultra wealthy that everybody knows about. Um, right? Things, things got better for Russians for a long time. Since 2014, things have gotten worse for Russians. Um, and now they're getting a lot worse, a lot faster. Um, and at some point, that's going to come back to bite them, right? You know, the people like to think that these governments are monoliths, are, are adversaries, um, you know, both from the Western perspective. But it's a common mistake everybody makes in international relations. They're not. Like, at some point, this stuff is going to come back to bite Putin. Um, and the Russian people living as the Venezuelan people do or as the North Korean people do is 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 probably even too much for the the kind of um legendary uh kind of uh, patience of the russian people but like ability to endure of the russian people would be my way out frame
0: yeah that's a nice way of of euphemizing their ability to tolerate suffering um i so th- there's another there. <laughs> <laughs> it, i'm convinced that has that's like 80% of it is like it's so
1: freaking cold in russia that they can put up with terrible government <laughs>
0: You know, it is really cold and it's really dark too. I, I've, I was invited yeah. to Moscow a couple of times to speak at conferences and it was always in December and I always thought when they invited me in the spring or the summer is when I'd know that they actually took me seriously but I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> anytime soon <laughs> based on how things are going. Um, you were talking about the Russian people and the middle class and the rich and, and this was another question that I've always struggled with which is, is there a way to target sanctions that goes after the Russian government without going after the Russian people? Or are sanctions just too blunt an object and you just basically have to say, all right, like, you know, we don't like that we have to go after the Russian people here, but the strategy really is make things bad for people on the ground and that puts pressure on the government. Yeah.
1: In 2014, the answer to that question is yes, when there were limited kind of Russian objectives and limited, you know, kind of limited objectives for the sanctions, um, and and what happened in 2014 that screws everybody up with this is that Putin imposed that ridiculous food import ban. So Russian people actually got hurt, but it wasn't because of Western sanctions. It was because Putin essentially took away food imports. So mm-hmm. food, food inflation spiked like 20, 20 25, 30 percent over, overnight almost. Um, so in 2014, the answer to that question is yes. Um, when the discussion becomes around, and, and this is, I think, is, is key, right? Like this isn't just Ukraine right, the way that Washington and Brussels and London and, and, you know, Berlin and Paris view this, this is not just about Ukraine. This is about fundamentally fracturing NATO. and, And as Fiona Hill has pointed out, this is about essentially like the recreation of czarist Russia, which is bigger than the USSR. And when that's the threat, right, the undermining of like this basic democratic order that has provided, you know, the biggest growth in wealth in in the history of humankind etc cetera, etc cetera, right you know like human rights largely peaceful europe since world war ii um setting aside you know like the balkans conflict and, and some other things like that you know that that kind of a magnitude of threat means you just can't spare the russian people because sanctions are too blunt then and there's not enough impact you can have by just going after rich Russians, rich Russians connected to the government can always hide underneath the wings of the Kremlin. Um, -hmm. right. You're always going to have some domestic industry and Russia is the biggest land mass on earth. So, you know, there's always going to be some of that there and an ability for, for kind of the corrupt and the cronies and, um, you know, the the various and sundry bootlickers to, to kind of keep themselves in a better position than, than, uh, um, you know, the, serfs i guess if you want to go way back in russian history <laughs> maybe not even that far back um cool. to bring that kind of spectrum but i think you know that that's a little bit i think of how these guys see them themselves as compared to like ordinary russians still it's, it's remarkable that that mentality hasn't changed
0: yeah has the wider adoption of cryptocurrency change the math here at all? And I mean, either way, d- does it allow Russian oligarchs to, to surpass sanctions easier? Does it allow the common Russian surf to sort of buy products more easily? Is is there a pro and negative at the same time? Or is it really just, look, crypto is still the speculative thing being traded by guys with their stimulus checks. It's not actually affecting the crisis that much in Russia, Ukraine in any meaningful way. Where, where should I fall on that spectrum?
1: bunch of guys that live in San Francisco don't care anything about Ukraine from that famous, uh, investor, you know, multimillionaire out there who, who said that right before the crisis started. Look, um, you know, look, the ordinary Russian and, and I would not call an ordinary Russian a surf. Um, I think that's how some of their leadership thinks about it. Um, but right. Ordinary Russians could use crypto to try to move kind of assets out of the country potentially. Right. Cause you're talking about relatively small amounts, um, for them, in, in which case crypto could be good, right? Crypto could help with a whole bunch of things. Richer Russians like oligarchs, plutocrats, magnates, whatever you want to call them. Um, on the margins, right, you're, you're not buying a $600 million yacht or somehow hiding that by using crypto. There's just only so much you can do. And, and the, the, you know, notwithstanding how kind of Bitcoin's anonymity on either end of the transaction, for most crypto, the actual like meat of the transaction, the the blockchain is public. Um, and there are a lot of firms that track it the same way that there are, you know, people who follow these yachts around the world or who do plane spotting and uncovered, right? Like the CIA rendition program um, <laughs> shortly after nine eleven kind of stuff, right? These people figure it out just by watching planes land, right? So, you know, in my view, the the crypto watchers are kind of the same way where they, they can figure some of this stuff out, especially if the money movements are large. And so I've always thought that crypto is kind of useful on the margins as like a utility of, can you move a couple million bucks here or there? Sure. Um, fundamentally, does that matter for the sanctions the US is imposing on Russia? Absolutely not. Would that matter for a narco trafficker, a terrorist, a weapons, you know, like a WMD procurement agent? Like, yes, that's, that's where I see the threat of crypto and sanctions being much more acute, but not for... You know, I made the pithy comment before, right? Like, cryptos for you know, narcos and, and weapons smugglers. It's not for bailing out the 11th largest economy on the planet. Uh, you know, like it's just not, not going to be there.
0: Yeah, it's not there yet. Um, sort of the last question, context-wise, before we zoom into some of the stuff that's happening right now. If I, if I'm a strategic decision maker in China or in any other country that might be subject to U.S. sanctions in the future, is there anything that the U.S. has done so far to Russia? That sort of makes me stand up straighter in my chair that sort of makes me say the u.s hasn't done that before and we could be uniquely vulnerable to that or is the u.s using a suite of tools that it's used in different cases in the past maybe rarely but that there's been nothing unprecedented on the table
1: i don't know that there's been anything unprecedented except for the size of the russian economy and the importance of the russian central bank um which is which is a big deal right and in and i think there may have been certain corners of, of those who watched China, since that's really the only like, truly relevant example here, um, who may have been surprised by the willingness to, to do it. I actually saw a piece out of Nikkei this, this morning, from the interview I did last week. Whereas some Chinese folk, you know, Chinese policy people were pontificating about how, you know, like, we can't believe the U.S. would go after the foreign reserves of a central bank, et cetera, et cetera. And, I, you know, I kind of read that and thought, like, what hole they've had their head in for the last couple of decades. I mean, Libya in 2011 was, a, you know, a pretty glaring example of going after a, a central bank and all of its foreign exchange reserves. In fact, in Libya, it imposed essentially a trade embargo by going after only the central bank. Um, You know, Iran's central bank and their reserves have been a a serious point of discussion for the last 15 years, you know, and so like these things have been out there now, you know, Libya, which was taken in 2011 as a kind of massive example of blocked funds was $37 billion ish at the end of the day, blocked in the United States, call it around 100 ish around the world. Um, You know, that's an order of magnitude smaller than the Russian central bank yeah um and and so th- those things matter and the decoupling with china is a little different and th- there are other nuances there but i think that's why you know governments have smart people is to understand what those nuances are and how how you can hurt the other guy more than you're hurting yourself that you absolutely have to but um without a doubt sanctions on china are much um even compared to russia are a much different kettle of fish i mean it's just The economy is so much bigger. China makes stuff people need. Um, You know, Russia pulls stuff out of the ground. And they, you know, not to kind of one-dimensionalize them as as an economy because that's unfair and not really true. It's not, you know, as as some people said, like just a giant petrol station. Um, But they don't they don't fit into the global supply chains with the same kind of level of irreplaceability as as China
0: yeah to the extent to the extent that russia's improved it's just that it extracts more and different things so now they're a petrol station and a wheat station and a corn station and a nickel station but like to your point they don't actually make a bunch of yeah, things that are going yeah, yeah you've got scarce
1: resources but china right is like an integral part of the supply chain for a whole bunch of stuff that people rely on like absolutely for day-to-day um that, that like decoupling has started to happen, right, of course, is, is you know, I'm sure. Um, but it's slow, it's painful, and, and you know, it's um, the idea of having to do it as quickly as has been done with Russia is, is you know, look, you, it might end up there if they flatten Taiwan and, and decide to march on over there, or float on over there, I guess, but, um, you know, that's that's also a big scary problem you know PR, yeah, well, even potentially what the russians are doing right now
0: yeah I, I don't think it's gonna happen but we'll we'll come back to china in just a little bit i i um to kind of move it uh to a different place um and you you wrote an excellent article that we're going to link to in the description of the podcast about um and this was back in march about additional things the u.s could do i wanted to ask you so what else can the U.S. and Europe do sanction-wise? I mean, obviously, oil and natural gas is on the table, and we're going to talk just about kind of energy after after this. But um, are there things that the U.S. can still do? Has the U.S. pulled any of its punches? Or has the U.S. basically done everything it can do um, short of getting the Europeans to sanction oil and natural gas? The
1: U.S. has done quite a lot, right? It's, it's taken out the biggest banks the um, most part. it's gone after the central bank um but there are still a whole bunch of kind of big important companies that could be sanctioned and some of them have been sanctioned by the uk or eu and you know it it seems to me like job one for for the white house and and those who are planning this stuff out is probably like equalizing sanctions somehow the u.s is like a little bit behind some of the others Hmm. um Discounting spare bank, which hasn't been done to the same, which hasn't been sanctioned to the same degree and and across the pond. But, um, you know, like the U.S. hasn't done Sovcomflot. The U.S. hasn't done Sogas, the the large state-owned insurance company that was actually linked to the Rotenberg brothers. Um, You know, it's, there are, there's a whole swath of Russian industry that could be gone after. There's a whole... Swath of banks that still remain. Most of the big fish are gone, but Gazprom Bank is still out there. The UK has sanctioned Gazprom Bank, and there's a whole bunch of complications with, with that one, of course. But is that? Um, and then oil and gas, right, is is the big, the big like ticket item that remains before you impose essentially a full financial embargo, um, mm-hmm. which is, I think, kind of the last big step and a lot of a lot of what happens after that is what you see with iran and north korea and, and others just like cleaning up right so you you the big stuff and now you've got to go after all the little like evasion networks and getting the way i always think about it is like a continuum of like a 0 to 100% of the impact sanctions can have and even iran is at say 95 um you know somewhere in that like 92 to 95ish percent range but like going from ninety five to one hundred is really really hard because you got to play whackable, right? It's just mm-hmm. that's the game you play constantly because it's easy to set up front companies. Um, it, North Korea is a good demonstration of this because it's when China pays attention, North Korea goes from like ninety two to ninety seven on that on that meter ninety eight, and that that tends to actually force them to to try to take things a little more seriously um, in terms of negotiations and stuff. And you know, the Trump administration actually got there. They got. They got to Singapore and then everything went to hell from there. But he, you know, like <laughs> not notwithstanding President Trump having a photo op with his his buddy Kim um and, and all of the insanity of that, like the people working in his administration, um including you know USUN up in New York, did a fabulous job of actually getting the Russians and the Chinese to pay attention and care about it. That's hard mm-hmm. to do.
0: Where um so if, if Iran is a ninety-two or a ninety-five, where is Russia on your on your scale right now?
1: I have trouble pushing Russia past like 75, without oil and gas going down. Um, you know, I think that's a big chunk, right. That takes you up to like, up to close to, I mean, if they did oil and gas, that probably, you know, I I would say Russia's probably in the like 65 to 70 range. Um, and if you do oil and gas, it goes from say 65 to like 85. Um, Mm -hmm. since that's so much of their external receivables that, that, if you've done oil and gas entirely, it almost, it, there's other stuff you can do, but it's like small potatoes compared to it, um, including the full financial embargo, which is a big deal and cuts off a bigger swath, you know, a bigger kind of group of things. But it, you know, the impact is, is not as kind of directly felt in the Kremlin because there's just, you know, oil and gas is so much of their effort, their foreign,
0: you know, earnings. So. Yeah. Do you think that the Europeans are going to do oil and gas? This is probably the question I get the most, and I have said no. I don't think they're going to do it. Um, but I, I wonder if you agree or if you see it differently.
1: There have been a number of ideas floated about setting up um, setting up an Iran style significantly reducing construct where where they would significantly reduce imports and earnings or payments for those, for those commodities would go into essentially blocked accounts overseas. It could be used for like approved bilateral trade, like textile trade or something like that. Um, and then I've seen a preponderance of just absolutely baffling references to just set up oil for food program for, for Russia as if people forget what happened in the nineties with oil for food and, and what a flaming wreckage of a policy that was um it's just like the the short-term memory people have is just remarkable sometimes um just go read the report um you know so like there's some like steps you could take along the way to to get there without having to go full full scale which i think is probably more likely than a you know going cold turkey um but I also didn't think the central bank would be sanctioned in the first like 10 days of the war. And it was, and so, you know, like these things can happen quickly. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, the, the thing that I've always, and, and, you know, we, you made the disclaimer at the top of this, that we're filming, you know, taping this on the 13th and it will come out several days later. Um, right. We don't have any fidelity on whether a chemical weapon was used in Mario. Right. Um, if Zelensky is assassinated, what, what's the reaction, right? If they, if they suddenly go and carpet bomb Kiev or something, you know, like you could conceive of a parade of horribles that are well within the realm of, of the tactics Putin and this new commanding general had used in Syria for the last uh, 11 years, which is super depressing to, to even think about. Um, you know and and those things provoking a response that says all right that's enough we just you know we don't care about the hit um to to you know the european economy the world economy like we need to not have world war three
0: yeah i i'm glad you said that because and i i worry that this is a failure of my own imagination but can it really get that much worse i mean like let's say like i mean the scenario like let's say russia goes for transnistria and moldova or let's say they they get to assassinate zelensky even like a chemical weapons attack which doesn't make any sense to me militarily it, it literally achieves no objectives um mm-hmm. but like it, aren't the pictures outside of kiev and all these terrors that we're unearthing right now like if that's not enough are these other things really going to be the moment where it goes the cynic in me is sort of like well if like if this is what we've got now with it's fresh on everybody's minds. The conflict is still quite not normalized yet. This is probably as good as we're going to go. And I understand the Europeans don't want to, you know, have 20% demand destruction of their energy consumption. No government is going to want to try and, and make that thing. So do you think I'm failing to understand, like, how that might switch based on something like that?
1: So so sometimes, you know, even as bad as, as BUCA is, um, and what everybody assumes is the case in Mariupol, it's when stuff starts playing over again on the evening news at, you know, like six PM and all these capitals. And you never know what's going to grab public attention sometimes. Um and you know, some of these things have. And even even what's happened to Moriopol, right? If it's you know what what Mike Carpenter, who's the US uh, or the US ambassador to OSCE, has said is there might be some some use of like an expanded, like riot control um you know, it's like kind of a chemical weapon, but not really, I don't really understand all of the, the kind of like, you know, details on it, but you know, like if they suddenly drop a bunch of chlorine gas on a big population center and you've got bodies of little kids lying everywhere, um, you know, maybe that's something that, that catches hold. Um, but These news cycles are unpredictable. And I think that's, that's a bit of the challenge. And it, it's, it's, it's awful to have to think about it that way because um, I had a conversation with somebody who made the, the very astute point of, like you know, talk about like holding back sanctions for escalation ladders as, as a normal kind of policy issue. But is that the flip side of that is essentially saying, well, the Russians haven't killed enough people to deploy X or Y as part of your sanctions response. And you know, there's no response to, you <laughs> can't say anything to that because it's absolutely right. Um, as for your question of whether this can get worse, absolutely. Right, like, what if they cross into into Romania? Right, there've been um, you know U.S. surveillance flights back and forth along that, that Moldova transition, you know, Moldova Romania border. What if they, you know, there were some unconfirmed reports about moving Russia moving armaments to the Finnish border and stuff like that. You know, it's just like there are all these things that can happen. Strike going to Poland, um, you know, and, and then then it is World War Three, right? Because NATO is going to going to jump into action. Um, sanctions at that point yeah.
0: might be really, really yeah at, at that point default, we're no longer talking about sanctions there, yeah <laughs> and, and, and this is yeah this is another one
1: of my points too it's like we shouldn't be worried about having to from like a western perspective save sanctions to like help deter russia after they've done whatever's going to happen in ukraine from crossing into poland like nato's military threat should be enough especially after how badly russia's military has performed um there's no reason to hold hold sanctions in reserve for, for NATO defense, territory defense. That's just a
0: kind of, I yeah. people
1: will default to that, but it's a silly kind of distinction.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Um, if we zoom out a little bit, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about secondary sanctions too, because as you kind of alluded to, sanctions really become powerful when you get everybody on the same team and you can force multiply one country's actions. The US is very powerful, but even the US by itself cannot do a lot of things here. Um, and obviously, the U.S. threatened China fairly early on here with, oh, we're going to do these secondary sanctions against your companies if you support the Russians or engage with the Russians. They haven't U.S. hasn't really gone through with some of that. Um, the U.S. has been, I would argue, positively friendly towards India based on how India has been acting towards Russia and all of this and the opportunity they see for getting cheap oil. Um, So the question there is, are there secondary sanctions that you think can make a difference here? Do you think that countries, whether they're a competitor like China or uh, an ally or pragmatic partner like India, that the threat of secondary sanctions is going to bring them on board? Um, And do you think the US is even considering that? Or do you think India, China, some of these other countries are going to do whatever they're going to do? Um, and it's going to have to. The ball is going to be in the U.S.'s court whether it wants to go after some of these countries in the context of rising inflation and all these other problems the Biden administration is dealing. With. I think the threat of secondary sanctions is having an effect. I think you know the
1: challenge is you know from Beijing's perspective, there's no way for Beijing to say, "Yeah, we're not going to do this because the U.S. threatened us," right? Like that's just not a tenable political yeah. statement to me and the same thing goes for delhi um you know so i think the challenge with thinking about when secondary sanctions as much as i hate that terminology because it's not actually <laughs> kind of legally accurate to, to what secondary sanctions are but the purposes of where the world has moved to, I have to suck it up and, and ditch my wonky arguments no. on
0: it. Um, no, no, you don't. You get to do whatever you want. Please tell us the right words to use. No, people who no, listen to this just, podcast it's like not want truth. Words anymore. <laughs> it's, like, it's
1: like a Venn diagram where like, some of it falls under what people think it is, but most of what people think it is isn't secondary sanctions in any event. OFAC has the ability to sanction whoever the hell they want. Secondary sanctions constructs are no, so it's it's all artificial and it's all policy is, is kind of the biggest thing. And so like, when does policy suggest, you know, your policy considerations suggest you need to do something right with India. Like they haven't formalized anything. Buying Russian energy is not illegal, which is what they're talking about. Um, There's not really anything to do there right now. If there was any weapons to the Russians, which of course the flow is the other way, but, you know, if they're sending weapons to the Russians, that'd be a different story. Same thing with China. Um, you know, Chinese companies are not jumping into this for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think the same would be true of Indian companies as well. Like They, they have their own motives. Um, you, you know, whatever the threats that come out of China, and, and there are many, one thing that is at least somewhat reassuring about China setting aside the Taiwan issue is their self-interest is a little bit easier sometimes to calculate because they do stick to dollars and cents more than the Russians do. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there is more, there is more, frankly, uh, my, my take on this is more accountability in China to the people of China in, in Beijing, at least to the people of China than there is from the Kremlin to, to the people of Russia, um, sliding scales, of course, but you know, it's, I think China pays attention more and, and does more to, to kind of um, help the people of China than, than Putin's regime does. Um, so you can calculate some of the Chinese response based on China's not just going to bail Russia out for the sake of bailing them out. That's not in China's interest. Their companies are going to lose a ton of money. Russia's a sinking ship. Why throw good money after that? Um, I think those are there. They, of course, will take some pot shots. We've signed an agreement, quote-unquote. Agreement may not turn into anything, right? We heard a lot in 2014 about Russia pivoting to China and how that was going to, like, insulate them from U.S. sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing ever happened. The Chinese didn't want what the Russians were selling. Um, You know, even, even the gas pipeline they supposedly agreed to build but never got built, right? There are all of these, like, you know, exploratory agreements and stuff that could get signed, but at the end of the day... And you're making a choice about sanctioning especially in china a very large institution or potentially in india you know a strategically important company for for a kind of country we we hope to keep a little bit on the straight and narrow given their 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 issues both east and west um i think you have to have really concrete stuff to go on and right now there's just a there's so much speculation but very little um very little fire behind all the smoke everybody is supposedly seeing in The need post-secondary mm-hmm. sanctions is my my feel for it is there's not enough there for the the white house to be taking action so that's kind of where where my head is on it I, I just i think there has to be something something significant something obvious something big for them to do anything and i haven't seen anything like that
0: do you think it was mostly an empty threat then, or because I mean, it's not good if the White House is no, making empty I, threats. I don't think too. so because you know I, I think some of the gold
1: threats were were actually the big ones. You gold traders in China, um, you know, if you're if you're you know if you engage in in, in trading Russia's you know gold reserves and then converting them to dollars to give to the Russians, we're coming after you. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think I think those threats are, you know, they don't have to be, they don't always have to be explicit threats, but, you know, remind you that if you conduct this transaction and it comes to the United States, you are liable, right? Um, the Department of Justice will go after you. OFAC will go after you. You will be out of business here. Um, you know, things like that make a difference. And then there's strategic discussions with the Chinese about, you know, frankly, if, if you're Ambassador Burns, if I were Ambassador Burns over in Beijing, the discussions I would be having with the Chinese would be probably less about, and you know, it probably include some, but less about the specific threats to China and more about these are all of the 700 reasons why helping Russia would be a really bad idea for you. Um, and you know, there's a whole bunch of, you're, you're going to lose money. You can't afford to lose that money. You've got to bail out all these real estate companies that have overinvested and don't have any, any, um, anybody to, to, you know, buy the apartments and you're sitting on a, you know, there's, they're sitting on like a landmine of a real estate bubble as they have been for, for a long time. And so they just, they don't have as much room for error as I think people assume the Chinese do. Um, the Chinese certainly don't have as much economic room for error as The U S does.
0: Yeah. And, and I mean, I think you were you were talking about the social contract with Russia. I mean, I think for the Russians, it was really Putin brought stability. For the Chinese, it's like, it's still, we need prosperity here before we're going to allow kind of the stability argument to take root. And I, My sense is that's where the Chinese government is at. Um, but like you said, I mean, I've had to eat my my own fair share of humble pie because a lot of things have happened in the last eight weeks that I didn't expect. So I guess everything's a little bit up for grabs.
1: Yeah so somebody pointed out to me a number of years ago and I have no idea if this stat is still the case but they you know they said like look China's got 30 million college graduates who need jobs every single year. Um and like they care about that, kind Cuz they have to. Um there's so many of them. Um you know and so like they they just they are more answerable. and you know look the idea of like prosperity is is a little different especially compared to coast to inland and all that kind of stuff but like it still matters there in a way it doesn't matter in Russia, for Russia, for at least the governments.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Brian, before I let you go, because I know you're busy and probably have a bunch of things to do, um, I just wanted to close with sort of the last question. We've already kind of danced around it, but I thought I would ask directly, which is, do sanctions even work? I mean, there was that Peterson Institute paper a couple of years ago that was like, oh, it's only 16% of the time. Does the US get what it wants out of it? And in some ways, that's like yeah. kind of a, you know, I, I don't know how you come up with that figure. 85% of all statistics are made up. But I will say it does feel to me, at least, from from a subjective point of view, that when the U.S. has a problem, sanctions. Like Xinjiang, Uyghurs, sanctions. North Korea, nuclear weapons, sanctions. Iran, sanctions. Venezuela, sanctions. Cuba, sanctions. like And like there are all these problems that don't actually get resolved. And I think some of that yeah. is just because you know, there's sanctions and then there's actual total policy. And just like, I think a lot of times the U.S. mistakes sanctions for policy when sanctions are really yes. just a tool. But as somebody who thinks about sanctions all the time, um, is the Biden administration using sanctions well? Has any government in the last, you know, four administration used sanctions wells from your point of view? How can sanctions be used to actually further U.S. foreign policy rather than to just sort of virtue signal that we're mad about something?
1: you're never going to get away from some of the virtue of signaling. I think just because like, that's what governments do. Um, I, I always bristle at this question a little bit because nobody ever says like, Oh, diplomacy's failed in North Korea. We should stop talking to them." Um, <laughs> right. Cause like, it's the same, it's the same thing, right? Sanctions are just a tool of diplomacy. And so too many people try to ascribe this. And I, I forget. Somebody did a, a survey of academics before the Russia invasion. And, um, and, like, 87% of the academics surveyed thought that sanctions should be the tool the U.S. turns to if Russia invades Ukraine. But, of course, those same 87% of academics are probably have written a bunch of papers saying, like, Peterson, saying it only works 16% of the time, right? So, like, <laughs> where the hell do you make up that delta? Um, it, it, and it is what it is, right? Like, it just, policy sometimes sucks for any variety of reasons. Um, you know, people to lose attention to it. We have transitions in power where somebody's not continuing a coherent policy. The Trump administration was especially prone to slapping sanctions on it and just hoping the problem would go away. To a certain degree, the Obama administration struggled with that too. Um, and, and sanctions under Bush were a little bit of a different animal just because it was it was a little, they were so much more focused on terrorism issues than back then. Um, you know, I think the Biden administration is trying to do it better and I think they are they're making some progress there. Um, is it perfect? No, of course not. Um, you know, but like it's, it's all about, you know, measuring success is all about figuring out, well, what's the policy, right? What are sanctions designed to achieve? And sanctions are always useful if you can define a a kind of discrete objective for them, you can translate impact, right. Economic impact into some sort of political movement or, Um, and then grade them as part of an overall policy approach, right? You know, like you could argue and I argue that sanctions in 2014 were meant to basically buy political and diplomatic space to get a negotiation that turned into Minsk and Minsk too. And, you know, looked at in that very narrow lens sanctions succeeded. Um, That policy of course failed, right? (laughs) Like, well, those, those things never went anywhere and, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's that's the case, um, including probably many that I don't even fully appreciate having been involved in it very closely. Um, you know, sanctions on Libya in 2011 were wildly successful. Gaddafi had a dilapidated military, froze all of his foreign assets. Um, you know, he basically parked it all in T-bills, um, partially because he tried to. The hedge fund thing and then got hosed in the 2008 uh, financial crisis. He lost like 99% of, the, of a $2 billion investment with Goldman Sachs, I think. Um, and then he put it all in T-bills and then it got frozen three years later um, because it was all in <laughs> treasuries. Um, and, you know, so like he had no money to, to basically revamp his military. Um, but then, of course, Libya has been a disaster since then because nobody's been able to exert any real control and the West has largely stopped paying attention. Um, so like, it's, it's that, you know, you're right. It's the overall policy, right? And, and people have to understand that policy objectives shift over time. Um, they become more or less effective over time too, right? Sanctions may have been useful in 2014 to get the Minsk Accords. Um, I think it would be very reasonable to argue that sanctions should have been used when it became clear Russia was not going to be implementing in good faith. Um, and that should have been the default is we're going to keep ratcheting these up on you until you actually implement this, this in good faith. Um, and maybe that would have had more success. Um, maybe not, hard to argue the hypotheticals, but it's, to me, it always comes back to a discussion of like, well, what's foreign policy and does foreign policy work? Um, because that's really all this is. So I think yeah. it's one thing. Um, it gets a lot of attention because, you get to make angry press releases and Congress gets to stand up and yell about it and yada 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 which is not as as much fun as talking about like the you know diplomatic negotiations that John Sullivan is trying to have in in, um, in Moscow or Nick burns and in, in Beijing but you know it's it is what it is I guess
0: yeah it goes back to so you know re- read the reports not the tweets is uh before I let you go is is there an example of a time where sanctions on u.s foreign policy you feel like like we're arm in arm that should be the one that everybody studies for how to actually use sanctions going forward. Is, is Libya the example or is there another one where you feel like the U.S. really teed it up and did it right and it was effective that you can share with us that we should all study up on?
1: I, I mean, I think the the JCPOA is is like the shining example of how sanctions can work because it was mm. it was very clear that that's what Iran wanted relief from is the sanctions. Um And and politically, however you think about the deal, right, in terms of the trade-offs, like, you know, sanctions were used to achieve a limited objective. Nobody overblew what they could or couldn't do with respect to kind of changing the regime in Iran or, you know, the 16-point plan that, like, Pompeo came out with that was, you know, tantamount to regime change, even though they wouldn't admit it. You know, so, like, but I think, unfortunately, a lot of these are snapshots, right? And, like, sanctions were useful in Myanmar when the junta decided that it was sick of China building dams, um, and wanted a little bit more political freedom and and economic freedom. Um, they were lifted wholesale. And of course now we're back to, you know, basically where we were prior to the sanctions were lifted. Um, so like, you know, unfortunately they're, they're rarely ever like static. You know, I think a lot of people would probably point to the the apartheid South Africa as Mm. the example when they can be useful. Um, you know, I think if if you looked at it contemporaneously, though, you might see more impact or a lot of impact on on ordinary South Africans back then, and less on the elite. Which is, I think, what sanctions these days try to flip that as much as they can, where you you know you have more of an impact on the elite, and sometimes you have an impact on on the ordinary people too. Um, but you know, it's a little bit of kind of weighing your options. But I, I do yeah. think when when you get movement right, even if that movement doesn't stick, that's That shows that they can be useful um, and, you know, if we're all being honest about it, it's not going away. So you may as well try to make it as useful as possible.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, Brian, I know you got to go back to banging your head against your desk and whatever you were doing before. So thank you so much for making some time. We appreciate you. Maybe come back on at some point in the future when we've got more dumb questions to ask you about sanctions. No, fun talking to you. Sure. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or in any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchpectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free, all you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't wanna do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.